0: Okay, so in 1958, Miles Davis recorded his first film score for Elevator to the Gallows, a French thriller about two couples and their weekend of murder. Because he's Miles Davis, he had to do it his way. He popped up in Champagne, stood in front of the movie screen, and improvised the entire soundtrack. In that moment, Miles turned film into jazz. The next year, he released Kind of Blue and got really famous. And the director, Louis Mal, eventually got famous too, with movies like My Dinner with André and Au Revoir Les Enfants. But Davis wouldn't make his own movie debut until 1988 when, mysteriously, he agreed to be in Bill Murray's Christmas comedy, Scrooged. No really, stay alert, Miles Davis has a 17-second cameo playing We Three Kings on his trumpet. Welcome to Skillside. Let me take a minute to introduce myself and the show. I'm Amy Nicholson, the chief film critic of MTV News, and the best part of being a film critic is that when you write about movies, you wind up writing about everything. Love, war, politics, table tennis, Greek gods, Cuban dictators, dogs who can play basketball. I became a film critic because I'm fascinated with how movies reflect and shape our world. And I'm a huge research nerd, so before I write about a movie, I want to know everything about the subject. Like, can a dog play basketball? And if not, how did the film make the dog look like it could? Skillset is the podcast where you and I can ask those questions. This is the podcast where every guest is an expert, and every week they teach you and me a new way to look at the movies. We're going to talk to three types of experts. The people in the credits who deserve more credit for creating the world we see on screen. The stars, whose personal obsessions give us a deeper perspective on their work. And the experts in the audience who understand a film in the way the rest of us might not. Like our first guest, jazz trumpeter Ambrose Akin Muziri, who weighs in on the new Miles Davis movie. Also ahead, we'll ask the hairstylist of The Boss, what makes boss hair? And we'll bunker down with actor Shalto Copley to talk about how Robin Williams affected his career, even though they never met.
1: I want my fucking MTV, yeah.
0: That's all in this week's episode of Skill Set. Trumpeter Ambrose Akin Muziri is the next big thing in jazz. The New York Times called him bracingly original, and he's won every major award. You might have heard him already on Kendrick Lamar's To Pimp a Butterfly. He's the trumpet on the last track. And if you want to hear more, check out his albums on the legendary Blue Note records. I'm obsessed with them. So who better to ask about the new biopic Miles Ahead, directed by and starring Oscar nominee Don Cheadle? Don Cheadle spent 10 years, 10 years trying to get his Miles Davis movie made. He even learned how to play the trumpet. That's dedication. Let's ask Ambrose if he did a good job.
2: He was perfect. He was was spot on. So, I mean, in, in, when I think about something like Mo' Better Blues with Denzel playing a trumpet player, uh, I would say Don Cheeto was probably way more on point with the trumpet playing. I could tell that he actually plays trumpet. Because,
0: yeah, trumpet looks so easy. It's an instrument of three little buttons.
2: Yeah, that's what actually makes it really hard. You know, it's not like a piano or a drum where you put your hand down and that's the sound.
0: Yeah, and in this period, there's a moment where he picks up a horn and you think maybe he's lost the ability to play, but he got it back. Like, how did he do that?
2: Yeah, lots of practice. Lots of, trumpet is vicious, man. It's, it's, if you don't practice, if you don't practice for one day, it's almost like you're a beginner again. I really, but that's the thing I really love about it. It really weeds out the people who are serious, you know, against the people who who aren't serious, for me I have to practice a minimum of, of three hours like that's a bad day that's, a, that's three that's a bad day that's, that's the three is like if I'm just trying to maintain or not go backwards if I'm really trying to work on something like we're talking mm-hmm. five hours at, at, at least mm-hmm. you so know for
0: the miles in this film who's been off for maybe five years
2: yeah I don't know how he did that I mean he would have to sit down I mean I don't know everybody's chops are different but it's, it's definitely painful, and it's definitely... Because it's, it's muscles, you know, and it's muscles, and it's coordination. That's the thing that, that most trumpet players actually don't know. It's, it's the muscles and coordinating the muscles with other muscles. Then it's, it's also air, and, you know, your lungs get weaker. You know Your lungs are muscle. You know, if you don't work them out, it's, it's hard to hold a note, you know?
0: So that's so fascinating, because you don't see his progress towards his comeback in the film. You see his comeback... A little bit, but you don't see and working towards it. But that makes me have respect for what must have happened and what we don't see.
2: Exactly. Stage. Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I think it's probably a good decision that you don't, you don't, you don't see, you know, the behind the scenes of the comeback because it's very boring, monotonous practice. You're just holding notes, sitting in one place. You know, it's very boring.
0: That'd be one montage. Leon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>
2: a lot of cursing, throwing the trumpet around. Yeah. It, <laughs> no, it's a hard instrument, really.
0: Now, I gotta say this because we have, we have two jazz biopics that just came in, in movies. We have Miles ahead and we also have um, the Chuck Baker one, String Ethan Hawk, that also is coming out. You know. it, both of those are about these two trumpet players at moments of their life when they were also you doing a lot of drugs and living these crazy, really hard lifestyles. But I tried to offer you a donut and you can't eat sugar before <laughs> you go play.
2: You're gonna put me out there. Uh,
0: you're so I guess trumpet playing isn't always heroin. You can be a healthy trumpet
2: player? Yeah, I, I will say that I think my generation has learned from prior generations. Uh, I don't have any drug addict friends <laughs> <laughs> that that play this music. And also, yeah, I mean, for many reasons. I mean, things are just a little bit more demanding. And there's options nowadays. Um, and also, that's just not the scene anymore. Like, it's... You know, I, I, jazz musicians often get a rap for for being druggies and all this other stuff. But everybody was doing drugs back then. It wasn't just jazz musicians. You know, people were strung out back then, and they didn't even know it. They wouldn't even call it strung out. You know, um, but that's just not the case these days, uh, especially not my generation. So yeah, I'm I'm a bit of a health freak <laughs> because I have to be. You know, because I'm traveling so much and. You know, if I don't I get really fat and if I get fat then I can't play trumpet and all this other stuff. So
0: what I think is really interesting about Miles Ahead is that there's never a moment in the film where one of the people says, Well, Miles Davis, you know, he's great because he does this. Like Kind of Blue is is known for being the album that changed jazz in so many ways. What should people be listening for when they listen to it?
2: To me, jazz has always told the stories of the underappreciated, hip hop tells the stories of the inner cities. That's what jazz used to do. For me, jazz and hip-hop are the same thing. I just think that that's really important to say because a lot of people feel like they can't really relate to jazz. And I think it's just really important to remember that jazz is telling the, the stories of the inner cities.
0: That was jazz trumpeter Ambrose Akinmusire on Miles Ahead. Seriously, go check out his album, The Imagined Savior is Easier to Paint. It's gorgeous. Hairstylist Linda Flowers designs famous hair, super famous hair. She invented Katniss's braid. Sometimes she's called in to head up the hair department for an entire movie, like The Hunger Games or the Fast and Furious franchise. Other times, Linda's been hired to work closely with one star, like Melissa McCarthy. Linda has done Melissa's hair for five films in a row. Melissa plays a lot of crazy people, so they've created a lot of crazy hair. Her huge curls and Identity Thief, her bleach blonde semi-mullet in Tammy, and her mousy secretary waves in Spy. The Boss is their latest movie. In it, Melissa McCarthy plays a self-made millionaire who has to rebuild her life after she's imprisoned for insider trading. When I saw The Boss, Melissa's hair really stood out. For the first time ever, she looked sleek. It got me thinking about how boss hair affects the way we see a character in the movies, and how boss hair affects the way we see people in real life. So
3: let's talk about the power of hair. I've never met an actress, and I've wigged many, that can wear a wig like Melissa. She just owns it. I mean, you can take a really crappy wig, shake it out, put it on her head, and all of a sudden you see her facial expressions change to match the wig. And not very many people can do that. She just loves it. She just loves wearing a wig.
0: You know, I saw The Boss, and she's in, you, you and Melissa McCarthy worked on a new movie together called The Boss. Right. And I went and saw that movie and she looked fantastic. She looked different than I'd ever seen her before. She's playing a woman who's the 47th wealthiest woman in America. And her hair just popped out to me. So I wanted
3: to ask you, what is boss hair? Well, boss hair is, obviously she's tough. It's a very structured hairstyle. The cut was structured, it was very precision. Everything blended. There was no, you know what I mean. It was everything about the haircut and the style was meant to say very controlled, very done, very much uh, um, thought out. There's a moment
0: in the film that I really like, where where Darnell comes out and she's giving her big introductory speech, and she's at this huge convention. Right. So Darnell comes. Darnell arrives in this huge convention. She's on a flaming dragon. T. Pain is there. There's chaos. There's an audience and it's screaming. And then as the camera pans over the crowd, I caught in in the casting. I caught five women with matching red yes.
3: hair. <laughs> I'm so glad you caught that. That was, you know, cuz it was it was supposed to be her groupies.
0: Well, it, it makes you think how important looks are to people or how they want to just wear that skin even if that's what
3: a boss mm-hmm. looks like. They want to be her, so they put her hair on. Right. Right. That's her groupies. It was great. I'm glad, I'm so glad you caught that. You know, cuz Melissa really We have the same thought that you should have an immediate impression of the character the minute you see them on screen before they even talk or even get into the movie. And so that's why hair is very important to her because makeup and clothing you take off at night and you can switch according to how you feel that day, right? If you're in jeans or if you're going out for a party, the the clothing that you wear are different. But your hair lives with you 24-7, so most people want to have it represent them in some way. And and that's when wearing a wig is so nice because you may not have the hair of that character. So we can create that and give you that exact, if you want to say stereotype hair, we can give you that.
0: I find that so interesting because yesterday as I was getting ready to talk to you, I saw a speech from Barack Obama that he gave yesterday and he was talking about the 2008 presidential election. And he said a thing I thought was so interesting, I wanted to read it to you and get your thoughts. He said, talking about Hillary um, in 2008 when they were campaigning against each other, quote, she had to do everything that I had to do except like Ginger Rogers backwards in the heels. She had to wake up
3: earlier than I did because she had to get her hair done. <laughs> it's true. It's so true. If you're in a certain profession, it, it does give them a quick read on, on you. And, you know, if, you know, she has to be taken very serious. You no, know, it's just, uh, it's like Michelle Darnell's hair is done. It's coiffed and done. What do you think of Hillary Clinton's current hair? Is that great boss hair? I think it is. Notice it's shorter. It's always done. So I think with Hillary, the, it shows a real continuity to how she, she wants the American public to see her. Or is that she's, you know, she's very serious. She's professional and all that. And and, and people do, you know, they they do. Uh, have an assessment of you by some things like the kind of clothes you'd pick for yourself or the way you wear your hair.
0: Yeah, you've got me thinking if a lady boss had hair that changed every day, maybe, like was up in ponytails Mm -hmm. or ringlets or curls Mm -hmm. or Mm bouffants or French twists, whatever, people would think, she's spending too much time on her hair.
3: Exactly. Yeah, and so you really want that continuity of how controlled and strict and how you know serious she is. So for audiences who don't know a lot about how to look at hair in a movie.
0: Mm -hmm. They just accept it as part of the character and they don't know exactly how to really look for it. Mm -hmm. For audiences like me who wouldn't even necessarily know what we're looking for when we look at hair in a movie, what tips do you have for us to watch a movie to be able to appreciate when the hair specialist did a phenomenal job
3: or to notice when they didn't? I, I think if you have an opinion, you know maybe you don't do a whole lot but you really, if you have an opinion it, it, a movie sets it's really common that if you have your lead actress in the room and she let's just say she has blonde hair you don't position other women that many women with blonde hair around her you you'd choose different colors just so she will stand out more there's lots of logistics and things like that and a lot of times they don't even want to hire two main actresses with the same color hair. They will if it's the right people. They don't, you know, if it's like if you're going to get two wonderful people with blonde hair, they don't care. Right, if it's going to be Kate Blanchett and, and, and C- Meryl Diaz, Diaz. or, or something, yeah. 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 they, they don't, they don't care. They, they don't, they don't feel like that's going to register. But if you're doing day players or even uh, extras or somebody, even a waitress that's going to come up and have three lines while they're serving your coffee, a lot of times they'll want to make sure that their hair looks nothing like the lead actress because you just want the focus the the eye to stay on the lead actress so it just depends on the room what's going on the scene who's in it this is what i tell people when i interview for a job and we're bickering about my my rate (laughs) i go it doesn't matter how much you spend on props it doesn't matter how much you spend on the wardrobe it doesn't matter how much you spend on the this what's going on around the set you could spend you know three hundred thousand dollars on a room eventually it just comes down to their face. It comes down to the close-up. And so it becomes very, very important. And that's uh, that's my arguing statement about, this is why you're going to pay me that much, because eventually it's come down, it comes down to me. <laughs> that was hairstylist Linda Flowers on
0: Boss Hair. Stay tuned. Shalto Copley became a worldwide star with his very first film, the South African sci-fi flick District 9. He's what they call a live wire, a fast-talking actor who's used a different accent in every movie he's made. Elysium, Maleficent, chappy, and his newest film, Hardcore Henry, which is one of the strangest and most hectic action films you've ever seen. In Hardcore Henry, Shalto plays Jimmy, a shapeshifter who changes personalities and voices every time he dies. And he dies a lot. It made me think of Robin Williams, and then I heard that Shalto's favorite actor was Robin Williams. So I wanted to hear more about what Robin meant to him. Not to sound creepy, but mm. I saw that you know when Robin Williams died, mm. on your Facebook you mm. posted um, a picture of Dead Poet Society.
1: Yes, that's right. Yeah.
0: What made you pick that?
1: It was probably the film that had the single biggest impact on me in my life. The scene where he's looking at the kids, the pictures of the black and white photos of kids that were in the school before... Uh, And are now gone when he does the whole scene that's leading into carpe diem seize the day boys make your lives extraordinary That scene if I had to choose a scene that impacted my life and that sits with me repeatedly comes back to me. It would be that scene of uh, the concept of Seizing the day and making your life extraordinary and living by that I've never been more inspired by anything in a in a piece of media in my life
0: Can you do an impression of Robin Williams?
1: No. <laughs> no, I can't. Uh, it's interesting. And I think one of the differences is that watching Robin, you know, and watching some of these guys, Robin in particular, in interviews, always interested me because I felt like he was hiding behind his characters to some degree in interviews. I felt like there was, there was a veneer that he could hide behind. I, I related to that as a teenager. Like if I was doing this interview as a teenager, I would just be doing one voice to the next, you know what I mean? And, 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 and the playfulness of that. And there's nothing wrong with it. It's like you sort of go to another place. You go to a kind of stream of consciousness place in the interview so that you yourself don't have to be exposed while you're speaking. I don't know if that makes sense to you. but No, it you know, does. It, it sounds
0: yeah. like a defense
1: mechanism. Yes. There was a vulnerability, I think, to Robin, which eventually somehow terribly tragically had some part in, in help, you know, sort of taking his life.
0: It sometimes sounds like a cliche, but maybe in his case it was true. Like the shy, insecure guy yes. hiding himself.
1: He spoke about that often. Yeah. he You're not often. He spoke about that a few times. You know, and and listening it was after his death, listening to that thing of uh, uh, the insecurity and sort of making his uh, himself vulnerable and sort of admitting to that and his need to be uh, liked and his need to be appreciated. I and mean, there's a certain vulnerability, obviously. That I think a lot of stand up comics have that. I kind of had that as a kid, but I, for, for whatever reason, I had a little more, a little more, I mean, uh, not to say that I don't have insecurity like anybody, but, uh, in, in a certain way, maybe even just living in South Africa, sort of a harder as a performer, you know, I I'll do those types of characters, but then I can also play Kruger, you know, like pl- legitimately play sort of a, a, a harder person and maybe in a way that's useful in life to have a little bit of a, you know, you know what, you know, fuck you attitude. Uh, when, so- when things are coming at you and attacking you.
0: Yeah, I mean, what do you make then of how you, Robin Williams started off as just like loud, crazy space alien, motormouth, mm. mouth, and then he transitioned into these more like sensitive, really almost shockingly sincere and em- emotional roles. Yeah,
1: he, he opened his heart. To me, Robin was, uh, Robin was kind of a light in a business that's full of darkness in a lot of ways. There's a lot of preoccupation with darkness and violence. And uh, the interesting thing about Robin, he was one of the few actors that to me really was representing the light. In his darker roles, they didn't really land. They weren't really particularly you know, uh, effective in relation to his light roles. He was the light in, 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 in his work.
0: Wait, So how conscious were you of thinking about Robin Williams when you were doing District 9?
1: It's a hard thing to explain. It was almost like you see somebody doing that and you recognize, I don't know if this makes any sense at all, but it's almost like you accessing the same place when you do a certain type of performance style, especially with District 9, which was entirely improvised, especially there. When you're in the improvised space, you are sort of trying to draw from the same creative place. You're actually shutting your own brain off and you're sort of allowing, they call it stream of consciousness kind of for a reason, you know, something's kind of going through you. That's the sort of connect point for me with the guy and my work. I would say, um, aside from okay, that's an inspiration, but it's more. It's not like I see you and I want to be like you. It's like I see you and you help me see what I am. And in his case, help you help me see what the vulnerabilities are that I might be exposed to. You know, when 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 I heard of his death, you know, I cried frankly, but it was also like a a warning for me. When I heard, for example, that he had been very affected by, you know, negative internet stuff with him. You know, when I thought, like, this is Robin Williams getting upset about people talking shit about him on the internet. Something, I think, also clicked over in me and said, protect that. You know, never let that never let that get to you. Never let that negativity get to you too much.
0: I don't know how much I want to give away about the character, Jimmy, that you play in Hardcore Henry. But you play... Many, many, many different versions of Jimmy. Yes. Is that fair to say? I saw this film in Toronto when it premiered, and it was insane. It brought Mm. the house down. Yeah. What can you tell people about Jimmy that you feel like isn't a spoiler? Well, uh,
1: (laughs) I mean, it's, it's different versions of the same guy is, I think, the interesting thing. Uh, you know so, in terms of what you could get away with with the voice and the accent and like how different you could really go between each one um, was was a was a unique acting challenge for me to just play like ten completely different characters is one thing and it's something that that for me would have been would have felt relatively easy to have to do ten that sort of are related to each other in the way that they turn out to be related in the film was was the tricky bit
0: now I was thinking, and maybe you 'll go along with this with me mm, okay. I don't think it would be giving too much away if okay. we just gave people a taste of a bunch of the voices. Uh huh. Uh huh. So well, if I gave you one sentence, would you say it in in different characters? From the yeah. Movie? Yeah.
1: Okay. I'm
0: gonna okay. pick kind of a kind of one that benefits me. Okay. Will you say, "I want my MTV"?
1: Oh wow, that reminds me of my youth. That reminds me <laughs> of dire straits. And of now. So so like uh, there's different jimmies, and we name them differently. So Coach Jimmy, <laughs> Coach Jimmys would be like. <laughs> I want my MTV, yeah? I want my MTV, mate. Yeah, where's my MTV? It's fucking MTV? Where's MTV? I want my MTV. Do we have my MTV? Do I have it? Yeah? And then, uh, and then, uh, and then Hippie Jimmy would be like, uh, yeah, I want my, uh, MTV, yeah? And, uh, you got Coke Jimmy. Who else do we have? We have, uh, we have Sniper Jimmy, you know? Um, he'd be more like, I want my fucking MTV, yeah.
0: I was thinking actually how kind of funny it is that you did this crazy voice for Elysium. But mm-hmm. I think because a lot of people aren't that familiar with South African voices, they might mm-hmm. not have even known it was a crazy voice. Yes. They're just like, oh, that's the way people talk.
1: Yes. The interesting thing is, I've done what, something like nine or 10 movies now. I've never done my own voice, which actually coming back to Robin Williams might be some sort of protection for me, if that makes any sense at all um might be my way of like protecting you know when i was saying that robin does the yeah uses the voices in interviews kind of sometimes i think as a as a as a layer of protection uh for me i haven't used my own accent that i'm speaking to you in now and it's true like some people might not notice necessarily the difference but they're radically different you know for south africans uh the Kruger guy talks suckers, you know what I mean? He's totally different, babe. And he's totally like, he's a different, it's a totally different accent in South Africa. It's much stronger. It's not at all the way that I would talk. And uh, Vickers was a very specific type of accent that is a South African Afrikaans guy that uh, studied. You know, he studied, the, uh, studied English very well. And he tries on purpose to sort of speak it very nicely. But uh, he's not, it's not his first language. You know what I'm saying? So I would have never guessed
0: it that it wasn't his first language. No.
1: I no. So his first language, so Vickers's first language is Afrikaans. So my specific South African dialect uh, I've 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 never used. And I did a Free Fire this movie with Brent Wheatley now I got to do another South African di- uh, dialect which was uh, really fun like a 70s uh, Playboy uh, type guy uh, um, arms dealer. It was a lot of fun. You know, we played around with that.
0: It's true. And I'm thinking about this this idea you keep coming back to about disappearing. And it's mm. making me think of you being chappy, you know, mm. being mm. a robot be where you never see Getting to be a child. Yeah. Getting to be a child, which also... And not made-
1: having to have your face out there. And so it was cool. Yeah, it was very cool.
0: Exactly that. And that also makes me think of Bicentennial Man.
1: Yes. Yes. And kind of the, the character actor. Uh, and the more characters that I've done and the more movies I've done, I definitely feel that it buffets you around in terms of it buffets around your sense of who you think you are because a lot of what you're doing is just exploring what people think they are. You know, as you put on different personalities and different voices, oh, I do this, I start talking like this, and it gives a whole stereotype on what you think I would be and how I would behave and how I would move. It really does. And, and, and so I'm dipping into different parts. And for me, uh, what, made that particularly, what makes that particularly tricky is playing villains or opening up darker sides to yourself violence uh, and a lot of stuff which i've done or just playing violent intensely uh and 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 sort of there's a there's a part of me that's accessing that i personally think that might have a lot to do with having grown up in a violent place being a very soft person somebody else said you know how can you when when i was talking about the need to protect oneself in the business and somebody said but how can you be as open-hearted and light as robin and be able to protect yourself. It was an interesting question. I think part of that answer, you know, it would be if you could. When you're exposing yourself in that way, it's like a person who's naked in a room. If the person who's naked in the room is comfortable being naked in the room, everybody else with clothes on is going to feel uncomfortable and look away. If the naked person is uncomfortable, the clothes people will be like, oh, "What's that? What are they doing?" You know, um, it's a strange energetic difference, but it's absolutely there. So if you can by the fact that you are exposing your heart and you are you are opening yourself. If you can find strength in that vulnerability, it can perhaps protect you. Uh but I think it's easier said than done. You know, I find it sometimes easier to just have like an egoic thing that just clicks in there and goes, Yes, I'm not messing around. Like I come from a place that's very violent. I've been shot at. I've had, you know, very violent situations. Um
0: oh, you've been shot at?
1: Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
0: When was that? Yeah,
1: in South Africa, we had, uh, we had a hostage uh, situation um, in, in uh, one of our early office buildings. Guys came in and uh, there was a whole shootout uh, in, in the office, in, the, in a production office, actually. They were, they were robbing a, a film production company downstairs. I think they were actually shooting Cry the Beloved Country, I think, at the time, or Cry Freedom, or uh, I can't remember what the film was. But um, yeah, a couple of situations. I had my, my ex-girlfriend held up at gunpoint it's a, it's a rough place. You know, I'm sort of one of the fortunate ones you know, where most of my, you know, all of my stories don't end in, in, in deaths. So that's good.
0: Yeah, now I'm thinking about you making those comedy skits when you were a kid, but mm. you're doing it when apartheid is still living.
1: Yes, yes. And so you sort of, on the one hand, uh, this kind of soft, sensitive artist who's, you know, going, I mean, my best friend in, in, in high school turned out to be a black gay guy who killed himself you know and he killed himself after he went and lived with street kids for a certain amount of time in in south africa and sort of saw and he wrote a book called 13 cents He was a he's a well-known south african novelist before he died um his name's uh Celo Deca Cabello uh, cabelo selo i knew him as Cabello deka he changed his name once he realized he was gay it only happened after school and uh Very soft hearted guy again. We used to play around doing characters, doing voices and stuff together.
0: I'm just, I'm kind of caught up in my head right now of thinking that you grew up maybe not knowing apartheid would end. And that you'd get a chance to do things that you got to do.
1: Well, I I grew up in a certain way blissfully politically naive in the sense that I went to a private school very much like, you know, something like Out of Dead Poets Society or Hogwarts, you know, the British private school system where you stand up and you say, yes, sir, yes, ma'am. When people c- come into the classroom, you have inter-house competitions, you uh and you sort of brought up to to believe and and uh, be expected that you are kind of the leaders of the country or the world frankly and uh, you know that is that is one of the spirit of those places and um not very grateful for it i had a good time at school but uh uh, even in apartheid south africa those schools permitted any race uh, and any religion so my in my class growing up there was you know my amongst my my closest closest friends is like you know cabello um who i would go to his house in soweto only later in high school you know towards the end of high school that i really realized like when i would go to visit him in soweto like that is like i'm not supposed to do that like i would go and stay over there and black people in that area would be like this is the first time we've seen a white person stay here you know in this on the street so it was then i started to be realized like how crazy it was you know but really for us at school we just lived in our own bubble you know it was like all of us growing up in a similar culture i think that's the important thing the culture was was one thing so it didn't really matter if you were sort of a hindu at home or you know whatever you were at home at school you were this you were this kind of anglo-influenced uh, uh, culture and and society.
0: All right, so everybody puts on a certain voice.
1: Yeah, not necessarily just the accent, but although, the, yes, that was true. Like people who would go, if you were a black guy and you went there, your accent would be different now. You can tell in South Africa, a black or Indian guy that went to that school would speak like I speak. If you went to different schools and you went to schools more in your area, then you were still black, you would still talk South African, you would talk like this, and you would say, I'm very sorry to you know that this happened and this is how you would sound. Or the Indian guys, you know, Siraj, my good friend Siraj. And I'm still friends with a lot of my school friends, you know. And they would all be, you know, talking like, uh, this is a terrible, uh, terrible thing because I'm Indian. And I, this is the way that I talk and I, I don't want to lose my heritage. And, uh, and so only when you grow up and you leave school do you see wow there's like really sort of big cultural divides here with with a lot of these groups you does that really sink in for you as an adult you know
0: well we have to wrap up but I do want to ask before we go is there anything you wish you could have gotten to tell Robin Williams about about what he meant to (sighs) you you
1: know it's a tough one when District 9 came out I was very fortunate because it was very well received in Hollywood I was I was being congratulated by people all over the, you know, all over town. I got to meet sort of almost anyone that I wanted to meet, and I was at events, and I was at, and and ironically enough, I was at the Oscars, and I was at the Governor's Ball, and I saw Robert Williams there, and to this day I'm not quite sure why I didn't go up to him. By that point, I was very comfortable to. I know the film had made a lot of impact on people, and and uh, you know there was a great opportunity. And I remember him at the governor's ball and I wanted to go up and speak to him and something, something stopped me. And I, you know, I'm not sure, I'm not sure what it was, but it was almost like when I think about it now, you know, I just would have wanted to say thank you. You you helped me realize what, sort of what I was or what I wanted to do.
0: Yeah. Shalto, thank you so much sure. for joining
1: us. Sure, thank you.
0: That was Charlton Copley, star of the new movie Hardcore Henry. I am so glad he could join us for this week's episode of Skillset. And I am so glad you could join us too. So tune in again next week for a new batch of experts and hopefully a new, new way to look at the movies. Skillset is just one of many podcasts we have just launched here at MTV. So to keep up with all of our shows, subscribe on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, and like us on Facebook at MTV Podcasts. We are brand new and honestly, we could use some love, so join us. Also, if there is a movie question you want answered, tweet at me. I'm at the Amy Nicholson. Skillset is produced by Mukta Mohan here in Hollywood, California, the West Coast headquarters of MTV News.